So I'm speaking today with Dr. Philippa Steele, Senior Research Associate in the Faculty of Classics at the University of Cambridge. Dr. Steele has researched on the relationship between the Aegean writing systems, Cretan hieroglyphic, Linear A, Linear B, and the development of the early Greek alphabet. But for today's episode, we'll be exploring her other areas of research, specifically the scripts and languages of ancient Cyprus. She's most recently co-edited the book, The Social and Cultural Contexts of Historic Writing Practices, published through Oxford in 2021, and has written extensively on Cyprus, including writing and society in ancient Cyprus, a linguistic history of ancient Cyprus, and syllabic writing on Cyprus and its context. Dr. Steele, thank you and welcome. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Okay, so let's start from the beginning then. Archaeologically speaking, when and why, and I, I think the why is a, <laughs> it's an interesting one, but when and why did, did writing first appear on Cyprus? And um, to add on to that, what sort of transform, transformative events are um, occurring on the island at the time? I mean, the one that comes to mind is, is the exportation of copper, for example. Can we also say there's a link between these economic uh, innovations and the social changes that we're finding at the time? Yes, well, so writing first appears on Cyprus around 1500 BC. It's a bit difficult to date precisely those earliest attestations of writing, but around 1500 BC. And when it appears, certainly we can say that it's appearing at the same time as certain social and economic changes are happening. So Cyprus has, in the sort of recent years before this, has become much more open to the rest of the Mediterranean. There's a lot of trade going on. Copper, which is one of the most important natural resources of the island, is being exploited And it's not only that people are exploiting that resource as they're exploiting agricultural resources, for instance, as well. It's also that as people try to control those resources, there starts to be a kind of greater degree of social stratification. That is to say that some people are getting really rich um, from, um, the, you know, mining the copper, um, controlling copper as a resource, and then kind of trading with people outside of the island. And that means that there starts to be maybe a degree of kind of social inequality. And it means that there are some people who kind of have control over resources who are seeking to kind of legitimize their power by not only controlling the resources, but also showing off their wealth in various ways. So, you know, we also start to see um, people kind of uh, displaying luxury goods, that kind of thing. And we see monumental buildings as well, which indicate control, maybe economic control over wider areas. Um, And writing seems to come in around this time. Now, It's not that we can make a very direct link because, unfortunately, the inscriptions of the Bronze Age, so this is the the late part of the Bronze Age, the late Bronze Age, um, those inscriptions remain undeciphered. They are sometimes found in conjunction with um, kind of evidence for, um, could be copper smelting, could be other kinds of industrial actions, 
Um, so it looks like, you know, there could be a link with um, economic things going on. But we can't actually confirm that from the content of the inscriptions most of the time. Um, but they are writing on clay. There could very well be economic purposes for a lot of these documents. Um, it's just very difficult to confirm that, um, given that, you know, we, we can't actually read the content. So these um, these inscriptions, this script that you're referring to is uh, Cipro-Minoan. It's related to Linear A, Linear B, and um, I believe Cretan hieroglyphic. Apart from Linear B, the other three have not been deciphered. That's right. <laughs> Can we dismiss any possibility that they are early forms of the possibility that they're early forms of Greek, given that many of the characters are also recycled between, say, Linear A and Linear B, although obviously there's they're undeciphered. Is there a possibility that Cipro-Minoan could uh, very well be a form of Greek, or is, is that just purely conjecture? Yeah, we don't have any good evidence to suggest that Greek is recorded in Cipro-Minoan. So there are a few things you need to know about Cipro-Minoan and its relationship with the other writing systems to sort of understand how possible or otherwise it might be to make those judgments. So Cipro-Minoan is probably most closely related to Linear A, or at least it appears at the sort of latest stage of the use of Linear A. So that, that's when Cipro-Minoan appears on Cyprus. And that is a bit earlier than Linear B is developed from Linear A. So over on Crete, Linear B is probably developed kind of, let's say, during the 15th century BC. So just a little bit too late um, for it to be Linear B that is closely related to Cipro-Minoan because Cipro-Minoan turns up a bit earlier than that. Um, so it looks like it's directly related to Linear A. Um, and Linear A, as you say, is undeciphered, um, though we do understand the values of most of the signs reasonably well. Um, it's only that we can't identify the language that Linear A is written in. Language or languages, there could easily be multiple languages. Now, Linear B is deciphered. There are a lot more inscriptions. We understand them very well um, as an early form of Greek. And that tells us quite a lot about what Greek would look like in this period, you know, what we should be looking for to try and identify Greek anywhere else. Now, Cipro-Minoan shares, it clearly shares a lot of its signs with Linear A, but for some of them, it's more difficult to make a direct association, which means that we can't identify the values of the sign, the sound values of the signs in Cipro-Minoan as well as we can in Linear A, but we can go some way towards identifying some of those values. And one of the reasons we can do that is that later on in the course of Cypriot history, um, there is a, a sort of new version of a writing system descended from Cipro-Minoan that is used for Greek. And that helps us to kind of confirm values at the other end of the sort of chronological cycle. Now, that being the case, I think if we were seeing the Greek language in Cipro-Minoan writing at all during the Late Bronze Age, we ought to be able to identify it 
it ought to be leaving some of the recognizable patterns that were used to identify linear B as being written in Greek. So although it's difficult to be sure because there are only about 250 inscriptions, we don't have any evidence of Greek being written in Cyprominoan during the Late Bronze Age. But things change when we get to about the turn of the millennium, so about 1000 BC. That's when we first see the Greek language written down on Cyprus. And um, the the oldest um, fragmentary evidence that we have of Cyprominoan is from um, Enchemy. Is that the, it was that the, I found this really peculiar. Um, there's something that's really unique coming out of Cyprus, which are these clay spherical balls. Now, was the Enkami find a spherical ball? And if so, do we have any idea what the purpose was of, of these artifacts, given that they're very they're unique to Cyprus and only to Cyprus? Well, the earliest, the very earliest finds don't include clay balls, but by the time writing has existed for maybe a couple of generations, we, we then start to get um, clay balls attested. And they're clearly a very kind of idiosyncratic Cypriot object, I think. Um, so Cypriots clearly start writing on clay. Um, the earliest inscriptions are on clay that we have like a, a tablet and um, a sort of a clay label, that sort of thing, as well as a, a cylinder seal as well that looks like it belongs from that very early period. But writing on clay is certainly something that Cypriots are doing at this this earliest phase of writing. And they seem to develop quite idiosyncratic means of writing. So they're not borrowing document types exactly as they look in the Near East or exactly as they look in Crete. They're, they're really kind of developing their own traditions of writing on clay, which I always think is really interesting because they're, they're not kind of importing um, writing traditions. They're really doing something that is quite innovative. Yeah, there's um, a quote that you have in your book here. You write, Cyprus was not simply a passive agent in Mediterranean literacy. And clearly, that's that's the case with the innovative script in Cyprominoan. Yes, absolutely. I think um, that there has been a certain trend to see Cyprus as sort of relatively passive or um, to see there as being a lot of external influences that are kind of being soaked up by Cypriots. And if you look at the evidence, it's really not like that at all. I mean they must have been aware of people writing on clay in other areas. So it's actually quite remarkable that they don't just copy the way that other people do it. They develop their own writing system. Um, and, uh, I mean, part of me always wonders whether the choice of writing system, um, which is based on Cretan writing to the West, maybe has something to do with um, Cyprus kind of being so close to the eastern end of the Mediterranean. So it's sort of at that end of the Mediterranean, it's doing something quite distinctive by picking up this writing system um, that belongs to um, the, you know, Greece, the Aegean, that kind of area. And using it in an area where cuneiform 
is really quite dominant and um you know keeps being more and more dominant um kind of during that late bronze age period that i always found interesting that they'd be surprised to find that cuneiform like you mentioned was really the lingua franca of the mediterranean at that time or of the eastern mediterranean Clearly, I know based off the Amarna letters that were found, Cyprus was presumably communicating in cuneiform or in Akkadian between the great regional powers at the time. So I always found that interesting that that wasn't a script that was adopted because uh, we can assume that it was something that was known and written in and they used Cipro-Minoan right? <laughs> instead. It's that... um. I guess, why shun it? Like, why not fully adopt uh, cuneiform? Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, when, especially at the height of this period, when different empires around the eastern end of the Mediterranean and the Near East are using cuneiform, not just internally, but to communicate with each other, um, so to communicate across language boundaries um, and, you know, to kind of maintain diplomatic relationships and things. Cyprus sort of has this very interesting role where internally it's doing its own thing. You know, it, it has this well-entrenched writing system that seems to be very much associated with um, kind of Cypriot activities, Cypriot identity even. But at the same time, Cypriots are able to participate in these kind of um, diplomatic relationships around the eastern end of the Mediterranean. They're communicating with people outside, whether it's Egypt or Ugarit. Um, and they're using cuneiform to do it. And I always think that's really interesting because it it doesn't take over what is happening locally. It doesn't really threaten Cipro-Minoan writing traditions in any way at all. But it does indicate that there must be people in Cyprus who understand cuneiform, um, who kind of know how to participate in these wider kind of networks and how to use these sort of more, I don't know if you, global is not quite the word because we're on a smaller scale, but if you <laughs> yeah. know what I mean, this kind of, kind of wider sort of lingua franca and scriptio franca um, around the Eastern Mediterranean. Um, mm -hmm. I also find it um, worth noting that from the time of the discovery of the Ankeny tablet, where we can confidently say there's, there's literacy in Cyprus, to the very present, there's always been continual literacy in Cyprus. And I find that bizarre that we have like a systems collapse at the end of the Bronze Age. And for some reason, Cyprus remains relatively insulated from that collapse. And I'm, that's not to say that there are, that it is not affected by the collapse, that there aren't, there is an evidence of abandonment of cities. But at the same time, uh, literacy thrives. It continues. Uh, what is it about Cyprus at this time? And and forgive me if I'm going beyond your your area of expertise. What insulates Cyprus from this collapse at the time, and how does literacy still continue to thrive? Yeah, it's it's certainly true that there must be some reason why literacy is kind of resilient in Cyprus in spite of these periods of economic upheaval. I mean, we can see that. Cyprus 
doesn't respond to these problems in the same way that other areas of the Mediterranean do. So, you know, if you compare Greece at this time, we see a complete loss of literacy. Um, the Mycenaean palaces disappear, but they're also accompanied by um, kind of population losses, very drastic social changes, loss of literacy um, accompanying that. In Cyprus, we see site destruction, site abandonments, but we also then see rebuilding, um, some maybe shifting of the internal political landscape. But for some reason, Cyprus remains very resilient in spite of what is going on across the Mediterranean. And that must also have something to do with literacy continuing. Um, and there isn't even a break in literacy. I mean, it's the same writing system that is used before these kind of Mediterranean disasters start to happen. It continues to be used and then it's used right through the early Iron Age um, during a period when, again, we tend to see it as one of kind of... Um, you know, social upheaval, social changes. There are periods when um, Cypriot writing is slightly less visible to us archaeologically. So, for example, by the 9th century BC, we have um, a, a bit of a period where we, we don't have any inscriptions that we can kind of date to that period with certainty. And um, so it's less archaeologically visible than in other periods. But that doesn't mean that people aren't writing and we can prove that because they're still writing in the same writing system or a related writing system when we start to see more attestations growing up. So literacy is clearly well ingrained in a kind of Cypriot culture. All right. So I'm going to um, uh, jump ahead a little bit to the um, beginning of the geometric period when Cyproman is starting to be replaced by the Cypriot syllabary that you alluded to earlier. Uh, and amazingly, the oldest epigraphic evidence that we have is in an incised bronze. And I, you know, I've never, I've never known how to pronounce this. Is it Abelos? Yeah. Okay. So, and um, it, it, it has a name and I'm not even going to try to attempt the name. I'll leave, <laughs> I'll leave that with you if you know what I'm referring to. Um, but now you write that with the exception of the records of the Mycenaean Greek administrations, to which I, I assume you're referring to Linear B. This inscription is now the earliest attested text in the Greek language found anywhere in the Mediterranean. And I, I find that remarkable. But even this piece is not without debate, which is fitting because this is this is marking the end of the Cypriot-Minoan writing system and the beginning of the Cypriot syllabary. What is the current debate and what is the significance of this of this um, artifact? Well, so this is um, a bronze obolos, as you say, if it's not immediately obvious what an obolos is. It's basically a long, thin piece of bronze that has often been referred to as a kind of cooking spit, but clearly it wasn't used for cooking. It's some kind of status symbol, I think. Um, and it's found with um, a couple of other examples of the same kind of object in a tomb. Um, and the other 
objects also have little inscriptions that we don't understand on them, actually very short ones. But one of these obeloi um, says opeleta'u in syllabic signs, mm-hmm. um, which we read as ofeltau, um, that is of a man, a man called um, ofeltas. So we have his name. A Greek we have, name. Yeah, a Greek name, mm-hmm. Ophelthas. Um, and we have this kind of record that this um, obolos belongs to him. So it's in the genitive case. Um, so it's it's the, the obolos of Ophelthas. It's in a tomb that I guess we might assume was his tomb, um, though, of course, it, it's sort of difficult to, to be certain of that. But, you know, we, we might assume it. And this is the the earliest, so apart from Linear B and Mycenaean Greek, this is the earliest example of, um, of the Greek language um, in existence. So over in Greece, we have these records in Linear B um, that date between sort of the the... 14th and end of the well let's say the 15th and the end of the 13th century bc it's always difficult to know exactly where to put those absolute dates um over in cyprus we don't have anything verifiably in greek at that period but at 1000 bc we get this um this greek name by the time we get to 1000 bc over in greece there is no literacy. Um, so in, in mainland Greece, in the islands, you know, where Linear B had been used, there, there is no writing at this stage. But over in Cyprus, writing traditions have continued. And then suddenly we get a Greek name um, turning up in the middle of that. And there, there are a couple of different debates surrounding this that are quite important. One is about the arrival of Greek speakers in Cyprus. Um, So it's often been imagined as a kind of mass migration event. I kind of like to think of it as maybe something less sort of momentous and sudden and maybe something that actually has involved um, communication over long periods, probably people coming and going over long periods. We don't actually need to hypothesize that there was a huge influx of people in order to explain why Greek suddenly starts to be um, a widely spoken language in Cyprus. Because you also get things like language shifts where people start to um, sort of change their attitudes to kind of which languages they speak in different circumstances and that can also cause one language to become more popular than another and then the other um, big debate is over the reform of the writing system so this particular inscription of a feltas has sometimes been called a very late example of Cipro-Minoan and sometimes has been called the the first known example of what we think of as the later writing system, the Cypriot syllabary. Personally, I think it probably doesn't 
make too much sense to try to pigeonhole it at this stage. It's clearly an important period and one where a Greek speaker, um, you know, has come to write his name in a local Cypriot writing system. Um, outside of that, it's actually quite difficult to know exactly when the writing system changes around this time because we have uh, not so many um, surviving inscriptions from this period. Yeah, and unfortunately, I, I think the next confidently interpreted Greek inscription doesn't show up for another 200 years or so. So it's sort of unique on uh, <laughs> as, as it stands out, isn't it? Yeah, maybe one to 200 years, something like that. But yeah, it's it's difficult. Sometimes dating these inscriptions is quite difficult, actually, um, because unless they have a really nice archaeological context, which fortunately the Afeltas inscription does, um, you know, it, it can it, often we're sort of dating things um, stylistically or... Um, you know, sometimes we don't have a good provenance for an inscription, then becomes very difficult to, to date. So it's not easy to pin down that timeline, but it must be a really important period in Cypriot writing because things clearly are changing subtly around this time. This is um, a little bit of um, a detour in our conversation here, but, you know, you brought up the, the, this idea of this massive settlement happening in Cyprus. And I always find it interesting. Growing up, I would I would buy uh, books uh, about about Cyprus, you know, ones that you'd find in, in tourist shops uh, on the island, and they always sort of present this time period as a period of mass migration and settlement, and uh, the emergence of um, uh, Greek identity through immigration. And I, I always find that just really fascinating because it's. They sort of dismiss this idea that identity can be imparted rather, sorry, they dismiss the idea that identity can be imparted on a people. You know, it's always presented as mass migration and Greeks arrive, you know, and that they carry this essence of Greekness in their DNA. <laughs> it's, and it's not quite like that. I mean, identity is, is, is fluid in it and, and it, it's adopted and it's molded and it's it's changed. The the indigenous or the whoever the Cypriots were living at that time, they didn't simply disappear off the island, you know, to be replaced by by Greek speaking um, settlers. And um, and I think that's 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 the reality in most um, stories of immigration. No, I completely agree. Actually, it's very important to think of identities as not being static properties of people. You know, as you say, it often feels as if people think that identity is kind of written into your DNA and it's it's not like that at all. Identity is kind of a response to social circumstances, I think. And as you say, it's fluid, it changes over time, you know, and it changes in response to what you're experiencing in your daily life. And, you know, I mean, Perhaps there were groups of Greek speakers who came over from mainland Greece, perhaps, who may have originally been attached to their old identities, but may have started to develop new identities when living in a new place. But at the same time, there may also have been people who were quite mobile, who were used to traveling around the Mediterranean, who maybe, you know, had different ideas about what their identity was and sort of how to characterize it. Um, 
I mean, what, one of the really interesting things that we start to see is that, you know, Greek speakers, we may not think that they were around on the island during the late Bronze Age, but by the time we get into the Iron Age, Greek speakers are clearly really attached to, um, Greek speakers in Cyprus, that is, are clearly really attached to um, sort of what we might think of as local Cypriot writing traditions. But they're not the only people in Cyprus. And there does also seem to be a continuation um, from a language point of view, at least, from the late Bronze Age into the Iron Age, because we see inscriptions written in the Cypriot syllabic script that are not in Greek and that look probably related to an earlier language of Cyprus. Now, you do write that by the late, and this is a quote from um, uh, one of your books, that by the late Bronze Age, it is quite likely that the island was already linguistically diverse by this stage. So can you give us an answer as to how many languages likely existed at the uh, end of the Bronze Age in Cyprus, uh, start of the Iron Age? Well, I can have a guess. I'm not sure. Yeah. I'm oh, no, I, I, give it, yeah, give it to us. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's, it's a difficult one because... Um, because we don't understand the content of Cipro-Minoan inscriptions, it makes it quite difficult. And because we don't have very many Cipro-Minoan inscriptions, so these are the ones from the Late Bronze Age, it makes it quite difficult to decide whether there was one language or multiple languages in use in Cyprus during that period. But, the, well, we, we see some kind of common elements across inscriptions that might suggest a single um, language tradition. But then there are other inscriptions that don't share exactly those traits that, you know, the, it's not impossible. There could be other languages around. And actually, it's been suggested long term that there could have been multiple languages represented um, in those inscriptions from Bronze Age Cyprus. Then when we get to the Iron Age, we know that there are multiple languages. Now, um, Greek, we, as we've just been saying, um, we tend to think of Greek as kind of coming from outside of the island and then becoming popular um, across Cyprus. The same with Phoenician, which is um, a, a Semitic language from sort of coastal kind of Syria, Lebanon, that sort of area. So very, very close to Cyprus, actually. Um, you know, that turns up on the island from maybe the 9th century BC or, or so. Um, and we have this continuing strain of what looks like at least one language, possibly at least two languages, um, that are written in the Cypriot syllabic um, writing system don't look like anything else that we know from elsewhere and are very likely continuations of earlier languages. Now, if there are two of them, then that could suggest there were at least two languages spoken in the Bronze Age at, at, at some time. But it, I mean, it's always worth thinking of, you know, language situations as just like identities as being kind of in flux and liable to change. Can I just confirm the Greek that's spoken uh, in Cyprus, the Iron Age? We this is this is Arcado Cypriot. 
Yes, that's right. It's usually thought of as being most closely related to the Arcadian dialect. So when we say this is the Arcado-Cypriot dialect, we say that because Cypriot and Arcadian share some quite distinctive features. Now, there has been um, a bit of disagreement over how close we think that relationship is um, and so on. Um, But what's really interesting is that Arcadian Greek um, is spoken in an area of the Peloponnese that doesn't really have a coastline, um, doesn't have a coastline at all, um, and that sort of looks relatively cut off. Um, So it's quite interesting to think what would the historical situation have been by which Arcadian and Cypriot were kind of closely related to each other. Mm -hmm. Um, it's, It's interesting, but actually quite difficult to reconstruct. So with the advent of Cypriot syllabary, uh, I was hoping you can just describe what distinguishes syllabary from an alphabet. Well, a syllabic writing system kind of encodes language at a slightly different level to an alphabetic system. Okay, so just to kind of um, to give an example. Um, so alphabet like the Greek alphabet, the Roman alphabet that's used for lots of languages around the world today, um, and you know lots of other alphabets, in- including the ones that don't encode vowels like Arabic, Hebrew, and so on, kind of in, in their basic structure. They all share the property of every sign standing for a single sound. Um, so pretty much across the board, a single sign just represents one sound. It could be a consonant, it could be a vowel, uh, depending on the writing system. In syllabic systems, every sign encodes at least a couple of sounds. Um, So for the Cypriot syllabic system, what we have is um, it's a kind of open syllabic system. That is to say that everyone ends with a vowel. So we do get some signs that stand just for a vowel on their own, and then some signs that stand for a combination of a consonant plus vowel. So the vowel-only ones are like a, e, etc. And the, um, the consonant plus vowel syllables are things like ka, te, po, and so on. Okay, Um, so every time you write any any kind of linguistic sequence in a syllabic system like this, you can't write a consonant without writing a vowel because there are no signs that stand for a consonant on their own. And that is a problem if you have a couple of consonant sounds together. So... um, that you use the example of Stasi Kupros. Um, there you have an ST together at the beginning of the word. And in order to represent both of those sounds, you have to um, use what we call a dummy vowel. That is to say, you spell it SATA, but that combination only represents the sound sequence STA. Um, so that first a ah is a dummy vowel. It's it's not pronounced. So it's dropped. It is, and and a reader presumably who's 
reading in, a, in an inscription out loud, for example, they wouldn't say se for example, they would actually read it stasi kupros. Exactly. They would know the rules of the writing system just as in English, say, you know, we know to pronounce the word night as night and not as nigget. Um, because you're, if you're literate, or semi-literate um, and know the rules of the writing system um, and are familiar with the language being spoken, then you have all the information you need to decode it. Um, but it's a slightly awkward-looking solution to um, to kind of writing a consonant cluster. What I wanted to know is, uh, how was that first achieved? And this, this might, I don't know if you're able to answer this question, but do we have a Michael Ventress of sorts um, in the in the deciphering of the Cypriot syllabary or a Rosetta Stone, um, how how did that come about? Well, back in the nineteenth century, um, there was a scholar who's particularly associated with um, deciphering the Cypriot syllabic writing system um, called George Smith, um, who was an Assyriologist. And worked on other writing systems as well, actually. Um, but the big key that um, was used first to decipher um, the Cypriot syllabic system was a bilingual inscription from the site of Idalian, which is written in Cypriot syllabic Greek and in Phoenician. And Phoenician is written in its own alphabet it's um, an alphabet without vowels as it were and that had been deciphered actually not that much before um so phoenician is another writing system that um kind of didn't survive antiquity and it was only um deciphered later on but by the time um, the Cypriot syllabic system was deciphered. Phoenician was um, already kind of relatively well understood. And that bilingual inscription kind of gave the key for, um, for deciphering Cypriot syllabic Greek um, and understanding the values of the signs um, and kind of how Greek is, is written in that syllabic writing system. So this was a long time before um, Linear B was deciphered. Linear B wasn't deciphered until the 1950s or kind of leading up to the 1950s. Um, and th so, the, you know, this is a, a really important milestone in decipherments of related writing systems. So of all of these um, related systems of the Aegean and Cyprus, the Cypriot syllabic script was the first one to be deciphered. Now, speaking of bilingual tablets or markings, there's another famous one. Uh, I believe it comes from Amathus, and it has both Greek script. I believe it's Greek script along with Cypriot syllabary, but the the writing in the Cypriot syllabary is not to record Greek. Rather, it is to, to record what scholars refer to as a Teo-Cypriot and... Um, that, however, has not been deciphered, even though we have a bilingual script. Now, is that the only bilingual script that exists between uh, Eteo Cypriot, which is the 
presumably indigenous undeciphered language of Cyprus? And if so, if that is indeed the only one, I mean, is that pretty self-explanatory as to why it hasn't been deciphered simply because there's just not enough to go off of? Yeah, it's it's difficult. So um, this language that we refer to as Etio-Cypriot, we don't have very many um, examples of at all, so probably fewer than 30. Um, that bilingual inscription that you're talking about is, as you say, written in Greek, in the Greek alphabet. So um, the, it, it dates from the 4th century BC. So in this period, people in Cyprus are starting to be more receptive to um, the, the kind of Greek that is used across the Mediterranean at that time, which we refer to as Koine Greek, um, which is written in the Greek alphabet. And that is um, that kind of constitutes one half of the inscription. And then the other half, as you say, is in Etio-Cypriot, written in the Cypriot syllabic um, writing system. So this kind of local script, as it were. Um, now, it is the only complete bilingual in Etio-Cypriot and Greek. There are a couple of other fragmentary inscriptions, but there just isn't enough in those to um, really give us any clues. So this is really the only one. And one of the complicated factors is that the Greek half of the inscription is clearly a bit shorter than the Etiocypriot half. So we can identify um, a name that appears in both halves of the inscription um, because we know the the values of the Cypriot syllabic signs since it's also used for Greek. Um, and we know, obviously, the values of the Greek alphabetic signs. So we can tell that the same person is being referred to in both halves of the inscription. But what we don't understand is the other Etio-Cypriot words surrounding the name. Um, so, yes, yeah, so it is quite difficult. Um, so the as you look at them, the Greek and the um, Etiocypriot halves of the bilingual look as if they're kind of around the same length. But if you think about it, signs in the Greek alphabet only represent one sound, whereas signs in the Cypriot syllabary usually represent two sounds. So the um, Etiocypriot half of the bilingual is actually maybe twice as long as the Greek half. Now, could that be that Etiocypriot words are longer, um, is it using maybe more roundabout phrasing to say the same things that are in the Greek half? Um, or does it contain more information than is in the Greek half? And we don't know the answer to that, unfortunately. Yeah, and I find it amazing that um, you, you, could, you can read the text without reading the text. Uh, yeah. I, I guess much like I could probably read Spanish and I, and I know how the words are pronounced, but it doesn't necessarily mean I understand what I'm saying or what I'm reading. Yeah, absolutely. Linear A is like that as well, actually. You can, and, you know, similarly with these Etio-Cypriot inscriptions, even with some Cypro-Minoan inscriptions, it's like you can sort of read out what the probable values of the signs are, so you can kind of read it, but you don't have that key bit of information that you need to understand it, which is knowledge of the language in which it's written. 
So with all these languages that we discussed, Ereo-Cypriot, Phoenician, Greek, and any other number of undeciphered languages that may or may not have existed in Cyprus at this time, how are they distributed across the island? Um, Would we say that uh, Greek speakers were predominantly found in uh, in Bafos in the west uh, would we say that if you were going to if you were speaking the indigenous and deciphered languages typically you were uh, in the south in Amathus how, how was the how was the language distribution um, around Cyprus mm-hmm. well the traditional narrative is to say that um, well Cyprus was split up during the Iron Age, into politically speaking, into a number of different city kingdoms, mm-hmm. which were autonomous from each other. And each one of them seems to have had an official language or a language that seems to be used for the majority of its kind of administrative or monumental um, texts. And we... So... Across most of the island, um, there are a number of kingdoms that clearly use the Greek language. So Paphos in the southwest is one of those, but it's not the only one. And actually, there are kind of city kingdoms dotted around the island um, that cover sort of most of it. Um, But there are also clearly city kingdoms that use a different language as their kind of official language. So the place um, where that bilingual inscription in Etio-Cypriot and and Greek comes from is Amethus on the south coast. And that is usually thought of as using Etio-Cypriot kind of in an official capacity. So Etio-Cypriot seems to kind of belong there. Um, And then in the southeast of the island, um, we have the site of Kition, which, well, that's the, the Greek name for it anyway. It seems to be Kiti or Keti in Phoenician. Um, and that was um, a center of Phoenician administration. It had a Phoenician king who used Phoenician for um, the official records of the kingdom. Um, there's an, another site on the north coast called Lapithos, which clearly has Phoenician as an adf- as an official language for some of the time, if not all of the time. It's a bit difficult to tell. And then there are some um, some sites in the middle of the island, like Adalian, where the um, the Adalian bilingual inscription, the sort of Rosetta Stone of Cyprus, as it were, comes from. Um, where there was actually a, a change in um, which authority was in charge of the site. So we know that it um, seems to start off under Greek-speaking administration and then changes to Phoenician administration, as does the site of Tamasos, which is quite nearby. Uh, so like this is sort of in the middle of the island. So from a kind of political point of view, we tend to tell this story of um, there being like, different pockets of language use across the island but if you look at the content of inscriptions um, and actually the distribution of inscriptions in different languages you get a bit of a different impression so Phoenician is not only restricted to the southeast and the middle of the island you know you do see it um, turning up in other places 
Etiocypriate, although the majority of our examples come from Amethyst, we can see um, examples of the same language. And when I say the same language, um, so inscriptions that share like morphological features, so are clearly written in the same language, um, popping up in other areas of the island too, especially kind of in, in, in the earlier centuries of the Iron Age. And, you know, we see bilingual inscriptions in places and we also see um, sometimes people who maybe have um, a Phoenician name but list their father as having a Greek name or something like that. Or we mm-hmm. see um, people kind of using an equivalent for their name. So in, um, in bilingual inscriptions, you sometimes see the same person being referred to as a Greek um, named individual in the Greek half of an inscription and a Phoenician named individual in the Phoenician half of the inscription. It's the same person being referred to, but clearly they feel able to use names um, of different um, linguistic origins in different circumstances. And then that makes you wonder how often are people doing that generally? So I think although from a political point of view, we might think of the island as sort of linguistically divided up, if you look at the details, I think we have to think of it actually as being an island where there's a high degree of linguistic contact going on, multilingualism, probably people um, who are competent in more than one language, though they may be competent to different degrees, obviously, but probably a spectrum of multilingualism across the island. Uh, that, that's that's incredibly fascinating. Um, I, I As you were talking, I was thinking of I mean, as you know, I'm I'm Canadian, and um, uh, Canada is officially a bilingual country. And it's been my experience that many French Canadians are fully bilingual. While unfortunately, that's not the same amongst most Anglophones. <laughs> and again, I'm just speaking from my my experience. This is not necessarily true. And I wonder, if, you know, if if you know, a thousand years from now, you're finding all these bilingual inscriptions in in Ontario. I'm I'm in Toronto. Everything is is officially bilingual. Uh, you look, pick up a cereal box, for example. On the back of that cereal box, uh, you'll have French and English uh, road signs, uh, highway signs. You know, French and English. Uh, unfortunately, though, like I said, it's been my experience, and I'm I'm one of many uh, that you know most of us aren't really that aren't really fluent in French. And I, I wonder what parallels might exist in Cyprus with the degree of fluency in these different languages. And I, you're right. I mean, it's 100% going to be a spectrum. But it does raise the question uh, about identities. And this, I admittedly, I'm very fascinated by this concept of identities. I suppose I'll give you this question. You know, what would a Cypriot whose first language is Greek think of someone whose first language was was Phoenician. Did did your research, uh, does your research shed any light on that? Yeah, it's a really interesting question, actually. And I wish we could get closer to an answer. I I suspect the answer would vary from Greek speaker to Greek speaker and might also depend on the period as well, um, or the the exact place in Cyprus where they come from. so there are lots of kind of variable factors that might sort of um, have some effect on what language an individual prefers to use, what they're educated in, um, and what they're used to hearing around them. Um, you know, there, there are almost certainly places across Cyprus where you will have had 
Greek speakers and Phoenician speakers kind of living in the same sort of environments, probably talking to each other, you know, trading with each other, you know, seeing each other on a daily basis. Um, and then there may have been other areas where the things were a bit more polarized. Um, so it's, it's difficult to say. I mean, for instance, in Kittian, which we know is a site with Phoenician administration, would there have been many Greek speakers around there? I mean, we do actually have some Cypriot syllabic inscriptions from Kittion, but not very many. Um, so it's it's difficult to say, I think, in some ways. But I would have thought that language use was perhaps not as much a part of someone's identity as their belonging to the island of Cyprus, or at least... Sorry, I totally interrupted you, but are you getting to the usage of names and how common the name Cyprus does show up in people's names? Oh, that is very true, actually. And I think, um, you know, that that's, that's clearly, um, you know, an important name element. It turns up in, in Cypriot names where they either begin with mm-hmm. Kupra or they end in Kupros. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that that is really interesting because it looks like kind of incorporating Cypriot identity kind of into your name. Um, like, like that's the common denominator, you know, whether you speak yeah. Greek or French, you know, you see yourself as Cypriot. Yeah. But sorry, Greek or French. <laughs> Greek <laughs> or Phoenician. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Got French on the mind. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I think um, you know, when you see Cypriots writing abroad, whether they um are writing in Greek or in Phoenician, they tend to refer to themselves as um coming from a Cypriot city. So, you know, someone writing in Phoenician might refer to themselves as coming from Kittian. Um, someone writing in Greek might refer to themselves as coming from Paphos or Soloi or Kurian. Um, but they tend to kind of, you know, cast themselves as a citizen of um, a place on Cyprus. And then they... Um, they sort of almost use their, especially with Greek speakers, I suppose, they use their kind of um, distinct Cypriot syllabic system as a kind of marker of their Cypriotness when they're abroad. Um, there's this really interesting group of inscriptions found on um, the wall of a little temple um, at Karnak in Egypt. And they're clearly kind of written around the same time because they're the the way they're sort of spaced out they don't kind of encroach on each other the same way because there are lots of graffiti on um, Egyptian monuments this one is a bit different in that it's not a particularly pretty Egyptian monument it's just quite plain but it has all of these Cypriot graffiti on it and um, people are writing their their name and the city they come from mostly that's that's all each graffito um kind of consists of but they're mostly writing in the cypriot syllabic system a couple of them also write in the greek alphabet as well um so there's one particularly legible one where someone records their name in both the cypriot syllabary and the greek alphabet what's really interesting is that they seem really attached to their kind of Cypriot syllabic system. And there are actually two variants of the Cypriot syllabary. 
one that was used mainly around the area of pathos and reads from left to right and one that was used across most of the other kind of Greek speaking areas of the island um, and reads from right to left and someone who comes from pathos will um, write their name you know from left to right someone who comes from um, the, another place like Soloi will write their name from right to left but they're clearly all at this temple around the same time they're thought to be maybe mercenaries serving mm-hmm. um, in, a, in the kind of Egyptian army um, but it's, it's, it's just really um, really interesting to see this kind of group of graffiti and this very <laughs> strong Cypriot identity that comes across What if anything does that imply? Was the common Cypriot literate? It's a really good question actually and trying to reconstruct the extent of literacy in an ancient period is always difficult because we are only going to have certain types of records surviving. For example, we will have inscriptions on stone and on pottery, but we won't have inscriptions on um, you know, parchment or papyrus. Cyprus doesn't have a great climate for preserving those things, so we mm-hmm. just we just don't get them, you know. Um, whereas somewhere like Egypt does, and we get sort of all of this extra information about what people are writing, what languages they're using when they write, and so on. Um, so it's it's difficult to piece it together when you don't have all of the information. But what we do know is that. The Cypriot syllabic writing system is really resilient. Um, you know, it keeps going through the years. It doesn't um, kind of give way to the Greek alphabet because, you know, the Greek alphabet dates originally from maybe around the 8th century BC, or that's when we see the earliest examples of the Greek alphabet. So over in other Greek-speaking parts of the Mediterranean, that has been the writing system for hundreds of years while the Cypriot syllabic system is still being used. And um, Cypriots are clearly really attached to their syllabic system, even if it's a bit awkward for writing Greek, even if it's a bit strange looking. I mean, maybe that's an advantage because it makes it really distinctive and that's a a good thing for expressing your identity. Mm -hmm. But we do know that if it's resilient, then it must be pretty well used. It's not, it's clearly not only kind of, you know, kings issuing royal decrees who use this writing system. You know, we find right. graffiti, we find lower level administrative texts, we find tombstones. Um, and, you know, and we not also, just in Cyprus, we're talking about in, in the, the southeastern Mediterranean, uh, we're yeah, finding we, evidence um, exactly. everywhere. Yeah, we find them sort of in various um, areas abroad as well. I mean, some to the west, but often kind of Egypt or the Levantine coast sort mm-hmm. of around there or um, southern Anatolia. Um, but yeah, we fi- so we find plenty of examples of Cypriot writing that clearly don't originate from kind of higher level administrative uses, but must just be sort of relatively ordinary people writing things down. And we also have things like depictions of writing. So um, we have statues and things that show someone writing on something that looks like a, a folding wooden tablet, for instance, which suggests that there are um, examples of writing that haven't survived to the modern day. So we can probably assume that people were writing on other media than the ones that, um, that survive well archaeologically. 
And, you know, that means that sort of helps us to think about how widespread writing must have been. But I think, it, it, you know, literacy probably was relatively widespread. Um, and that may have indeed contributed to the longevity of the Cypriot syllabic system. So on an official level, King Evagoras of Salamis introduces Greek script on his coinage. And that, as you said, does not signify the end to syllabary. They sort of coexist for a while. And ultimately, it finds its end at the Ptolemaic age. Um, I suppose that's a top-down restructuring of language in Cyprus? Well, in some ways, yes, and in some ways, no. In fact, I've been just in the past few weeks um, working with a thesis student who's working on exactly this topic. So I've been thinking about it a lot. And um, one thing that's really striking is that, you know, Cypriots start to get interested in the Greek alphabet. That is, you know, the the sort of standard um, Greek writing system from outside Cyprus around the 5th and 4th centuries BC. Um, and then it's at the end of the fourth century that the the Ptolemaic administration. So Ptolemy was one of Alexander the Great's generals, and after Alexander's death, Cyprus is one of the places that was part of his empire that then kind of ends up as being sort of the property almost of one of his generals. Um, though there's a bit of argy bargy at the beginning, and some parts of Cyprus side with Ptolemy's rival Antigonus okay. and you know it, it causes um, all sorts of kind of upheaval um, but the the Ptolemaic administration comes in around the end of the fourth century BC and it's true to say that from that period political inscriptions so sort of monumental ones ones that are um, commissioned by political authorities, those are now in the Greek alphabet and they're written in Koine Greek. So this kind of, um, this sort of almost lingua franca Greek that is used across the Mediterranean. Um, but at the same time, actually, we do still have Cypriot syllabic inscriptions turning up and indeed Phoenician inscriptions too. So during the third century BC, um, under the Ptolemaic administration, you still see people using um, the Cypriot syllabic system for votive inscriptions, so kind of religious inscriptions. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I suppose it's mostly from that kind of religious sphere that we see these examples. Um, and there are even some impressions from seals with syllabic signs on them that um, seem to date to the um, the sort of late Hellenistic or even into the Roman period, so like the the second to first century BC. Um, and I mean, there's there's a group of religious Cypriot syllabic inscriptions that has usually been assumed to be third century BC, but has sometimes been argued to be a bit later, so into the second century. Um, and, you know, it looks as though, although there's now this kind of political veneer that, you know, the, the Greek alphabet is used now, 
around this time, there must still be people writing in the Cypriot syllabic script. And it makes you wonder, you know, what people used at home, you know, if they were writing like a shopping list, or, <laughs> um, you, yeah. you know, or kind of writing a letter to a friend or something like that on, on a material that wouldn't survive for us, whether actually the Cypriot syllabary might have been quite alive for quite a while at that stage. Um, and I mean, actually, I've been working also recently with an artist who's had this really exciting project where he was looking at a kind of alternative historical situation um, where we think about what might have happened if the Cypriot syllabary hadn't kind of eventually fizzled out and had remained in use to the present day. And it's really interesting, actually, just to think about what gives a writing system vitality and you know, why people either choose to use it or start using something else in preference. Um, and, you know, they're, they're really kind of delicate issues. And unfortunately, we only have snapshots of um, what is happening in different ancient periods to try and piece together the story. I can send you some um, links if you like. He, he um, gave us, the, um, so his name is, is uh, Pico Rickleton, and he gave us um, a talk at a conference back in November. So that's on YouTube, in fact. Uh, so if you'd like to kind of look it up and, and sort of find out a bit more about that. Oh, um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Are there new finds uh, lately? Well, you're not the only one who's always hoping for new examples yeah. of inscriptions. That's sort of, um, that's the hope that we live off in some yeah. ways as linguists. Now, right. I mean, the good news is that there are excavations happening in various areas of the island. There are some very active um, excavations. Um, in recent years, there have been, for example, some new, really exciting Cypro-Minoan clay tablets that have been found that are quite different from other clay tablets in Cypro-Minoan. Um, and they're, they're just such an exciting find because it really expands what we know about Cypro-Minoan. Um, because, I mean... Uh, as I've said, there are only about 250 surviving inscriptions, so every one is precious. Um, in the Cypriot syllabic writing system, there are, you know, more than 1,000, 1,200, something like that. I mean, the, the, so I have colleagues who are kind of reevaluating the number of known inscriptions. Um, there is, um, at the moment, um, a big publication project that is aiming to publish all of the known Cypriot syllabic inscriptions. So the Cypro-Minoan ones have already been published in a kind of corpus volume, but the Cypriot syllabic ones, um, the, the previous publication is quite out of date now, and there are a lot more inscriptions that, than are listed in the sort of last corpus volume. So it's exciting to see that work going on as well, because actually, as well as things that come through excavations, there are often things that sort of turn up in museums that hadn't been noticed before and that sort of thing as well. So, it's, you know, it's always exciting to kind of find something new wherever it came from. But there are definitely prospects for more things being found. And, you know, we always hope for for more. This was this was really, really great. I really enjoyed this conversation. I uh, really enjoyed this interview. 
Oh, thank you so much for having me. And it's been wonderful, actually, to kind of talk through these things because, well, I spend a lot of time thinking about them. So talking about them is always really nice. But it, it does help you to think about kind of connecting up ideas, doesn't it? Because, you know, there are so many kind of different periods of history or, you know, the modern day that you can compare ancient situations with. And I think it's always important to kind of have those conversations and actually you know some of my most exciting work is not done kind of alone at a computer or in <laughs> yeah. a library it's done when you know I'm attending a conference or talking to a bunch of colleagues and you know we're kind of bouncing ideas off each other I think there are so many interesting conversations to be had you know I'm really looking forward to hearing the other ones in the series and that's it so thank you so much for your time Oh, brilliant. Thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. All right. Take care. Take care. Bye. Bye.